Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, um, and for the next couple weeks, what I will be doing is reviewing the, uh, the episodes in season one of uh, DirecTV's Mr. Mercedes. So, guys, if you listen to my review of Mr. Mercedes episodes one and two, which aired in August of 2017 and were free, I mean, you can go over to, if you just Google uh, Mr. Mercedes uh, TV show, um, it, it'll bring you to Direct TV and you can just stream them for free. I think that's a great hook for them. Guys, if you hear some noise in the background licking, um, that's... It's one of my dogs. She's very excited. She hasn't been getting a lot of love lately, and I'm right next to her now spending some time with her. Um, so I do apologize if you hear some noise. Um, that's just one of my pugs. Um, but anyway, I think that streaming episodes one and two for free is a, is a great way to hook you. Um, and so if you listened to my episode last week, or the, the one that I originally um, reviewed in, in August of 2017 and re-released, this past week, you, you'll you know just how surprised I was at really liking these episodes because I did not like the book. I famously did not like the book. So when I decided to review the rest of the season, I was excited to get back into this world because I was so happy and so impressed with what I had seen with episodes one and two. So um, as of right now, I'm not going to do the usual with iTunes reviews or emails. Um, I'm just going to jump straight into the review. I'm going to get right to it, guys. So I, the first thing I just, like I said, I was just glad. I was glad to be back with this show. So with episode three, it starts with a flashback to Brady, um, which is an important flashback because it, it shows the shows the origins of his, quite frankly, twisted sexual relationship with his mother. Um, we see that as a child, he caught his mother having sex with another man, um, and his headaches begin. Um, now, I don't truly recall um, speaking about this in episodes one and two. It has been a while since I, I watched that. It's been about a year. So I, I, I might have mentioned it in my previous Mr. Mercedes review, but I, upon seeing this, I was shocked that they actually kept this aspect of the story. Um I mean, I get it. It's a key component to who Brady is, but it really isn't something that you see much of in television or movies, and for a good reason. It's it's disturbing. Um, but anyway, we, we get another flashback, and this time it's Hodges when he first meets the Mercedes that ran down the victims. Um, when standing there, I mean, he takes in the horror. He discovers the sticker on the inside, and even though he's uh, affected by what he sees... Um, you know, you see the cop in him barking out orders to keep the area controlled and using detective skills to understand what had occurred. Janie and Bill um, meet up to begin to crack the case, and she brings him letters that the Mercedes killer had sent to Janie's sister, the owner of the Mercedes. It's clever how the narrator of the letter changes depending on who the scene is focused on, switching between Bill at the table with Janie and Brady um, selling ice cream to children. Bill brings the letters to Pete and his new partner, Izzy, who are both dismissive of the credibility of these letters. And through their perspective, he just seems like a lunatic, talking about the killer speaking to him through the computer using disappearing messages. 
um, fired up, he gets into a confrontation with a couple of officers walking by who don't pay attention where he's going. Now, this is a nice little moment in a show that's littered with these kind of these kind of moments, and it, it shows how irritable he's growing and the divide that's occurring between he and the department. As we check in with Jerome, we meet his little sister, um, who we know from the books, and I don't know how it's going to play out in in the show. Um, she's going to play a bigger role in the story, so it was just a night. Nice, it was nice to see her, um, knowing that that she plays a bigger role in the books, at least. And then, in a horrible flashback, or a horrifying flashback, um, Brady's little brother chokes on an object. Um, you know, it's one thing that he's choking, but the fact that Brady was sitting right next to him as it happened, um, it adds a really horrible, tragic layer to it. Uh, the show is doing a great job at building up the sympathy of this character, a character who has murdered innocent people in horrific ways. And yet, he was just a child who didn't pay enough attention to his little brother. And you can feel the guilt that he feels pushing through the television screen in this scene. While at the bar, Hodges, he lays into this lazy bartender. It is a scene that is so relatable, and I'm rooting for Hodges as he calls out the bartender, who is too busy flirting and texting to pay attention to the bill drink order. And when Bill goes on his diatribe of the response of no problem, it made me cringe because he's so right. And no problem is my go-to response. It was a nice slap in the face, and I'm going to remember his argument the next time someone says thank you. I mean, what is wrong with simply saying you are welcome? After a belligerent diatribe, he's picked up by Pete, who tries to reason with him again, except this time more sternly. And after drunk driving himself home, he checks his computer and gets another immature and obnoxious video from Brady. Bill then answers a knock at the door from Jerome's father, who shares his concerns about Jerome's future if Bill is going to be involved in his life. Um, it's a, as nice a conversation as it can be, and once finished, he really sticks it to, to Brady in what is both a clever attack and horribly, horribly irresponsible. He tells Brady that the real killer has been found, knowing that's going to cause the proverbial shaking of the hornet's nest. It's no surprise when people get stung. Even though he's goading him into the open, he is proving right, Peter right about this. He is taking this too personally. He is obsessing over it. And in moments like this, he's putting innocence in danger by poking a rabid bear. One of the recipients of the rabid bear is Jerome, who Bill tries to white fang but does so unsuccessfully. Jerome knows he might be in danger, but it's not going to deter him. That night, at the bar... Bill softens and agrees to dance with Janie. Again, as I've said before, David E. Kelly and Jack Bender allow these scenes to breathe and let the characters fill in the quiet moments. As they dance, their music plays over the scene with Brady coming home to his mother lying in her bed. The juxtaposition between these two scenes work well, with Brady in shadows and Bill and Janie lit with the soft glow of bar lights. And those are my thoughts on episode three. Um, So with episode four... The first thing that came to mind that I I, I need to address is the writer of this episode. Now, maybe I just didn't see it in episodes one through three. Okay, maybe he, this writer was the writer of episodes one through three, or or maybe he, I I don't know. But in the first episode that I reviewed for Mr. Mercedes, I sung the praises of David E. Kelly and Jack Bender. Um, David E. Kelly, long-standing, um creator in the field of television, Jack Bender, one of the go-to directors um, who most famously worked on Lost, 
Um, he was one of the, the, the visionaries on Lost, um, and he contributed to one of the most heart-wrenching episodes of Game of Thrones. So Jack Bender, he comes with credibility. David E. Kelly comes with credibility. And with this episode, we are joined by an equally impressive talent, the author of Gone Baby Gone, Shutter Island, Mystic River, and one of the writers on The Wire, the one and only Dennis Lehane. When I saw his name in the credits, it blew my mind. Like I said, I had known about Kelly and Bender working on the show, but I hadn't known I hadn't known that they'd gotten Dennis Lehane to work on this, which stoked my interest even more. I mean, this story, after all, is crime fiction, and that's Lehane's bread and butter. So to bring him aboard, it only goes to show the smart decision making that went into this show. Anyway, to kick off this episode. We see Brady hacking into a previously unseen man's computer, um, and from there we see a flashback to Hodges and Pete questioning Olivia, the owner of the Mercedes that Brady had used to run the people down. From the conversation, you can see the disdain they have for her. This disdain leads to Olivia being publicly shamed through the tabloids, adding more wrinkles and nuances to this story. It's understandable that the cops have resentment towards her, but their actions aren't what we typically consider as heroic. It doesn't mean that they're being villainous by any means. It's moments like this that flesh them out and make them more than just your standard stock cop characters. We then see Brady testing out his magic remote control at the train tracks. Then back at Hodges' home, he received a visit from Jerome, despite the fact that Hodges had tried to push him away due to the conversation Hodges had had with his dad. Jerome functions as a sounding board for Hodges and creates a working theory for the Mercedes killer and how he managed to get Trelawney's car in the first place. The theory being that he had known that there was a spare key in the glove compartment. David E. Kelly and Jack Bender tease the truth by showing Hodges holding the remote control to the TV before turning it on to watch some golf. It's a nice little bit of telegraphing. Back at the store, Brady and Lou discuss the verbally abusive white supremacist customer. It's an extended scene that illustrates the connection these two have. Nothing too deep and fitting nicely with real work friendships with Lou revealing vulnerability and frustration at the hatred represented in this character. And you can completely understand that frustration knowing that her manager cowed to the man despite the immorality within their heart. Little does she know that Brady harbors much of the same types of hate in his own heart, teased in the next scene in which he sees Jerome at a nearby diner and watches him enjoy his friends from afar. We check in with Brady's mom, who, while smoking a cigarette, watches the members of a street, um, one of poverty, just try and live their lives to the best of their ability. Families walk by, a couple shares a tender moment, causing flashbacks to sunnier days for Deborah, the dreary overcast of the present juxtaposed with the bright sun-filled youth and love. Jerome figures out how the Mercedes killer got his hands on Trelawney's car by stealing the key fob for signal. Hodges heads out to talk to an old colleague who's working in the record department. After sharing a nip from the flask, the colleague agrees to see if there's anything he can do to help out Hodges. At the cemetery, Brady and Deborah relive their tragedies, beginning with his father and leading to a conversation about the death of Brady's brother, Gerald, who suffered a choking incident which Brady blames himself for. The lack of oxygen to his brain caused brain damage, adding an extra layer of tragedy onto this family. At the local bar, the relationship between Janie and Hodges continues as they discuss how the killer had gotten a hold of the Mercedes, ending with Janie giving Hodges his fedora to finish the look of the gumshoe. At the hardware store, Brady starts buying the materials he'll need for the bomb, 
naturally hiding the fertilizer, fertilizer and chemicals by buying shovels, hose, and watering jugs. It's a surprisingly tense scene with Brady nervous about the camera close by and the fact that he'd be able to be identified by his old science teacher. The one thing he needs um, was the one thing he didn't get because he'd chicken out at the last second, the poison he'll use on Jerome's dog. What's good about moments like this is that it shows us that Brady is existing in very much the real world. He's not some Teflon genius who's able to skate through with his monstrous plans. He's foiled by something as commonplace as an old teacher at the checkout counter. In doing so, Bender and Kelly and Lahane reinforce the everyday quality to this story while showing the rage that bubbles up from Brady at this moment. On a nice downtown walk, Hodges reveals the truth of his daughter, how he wasn't a good father, and through their lives, each took turns breaking each other's hearts. It's sad, and again, it doesn't add to the plot, but it builds emotion and history onto our main character. Just like the scene with Hodges in the bathroom when he's having trouble urinating, we usually don't get extended sequences in which our characters pee, but in this case, and in this case, struggling to do so, but here it's laying the tract for the cancer which is, unbeknownst to Bill, percolating within him. If this story is going to be truthful to where the, the story goes from the books. Um, Brady then follows the aggressive white supremacist customer home, the viewer getting a sense of Brady's anger. And with his remote control, he changes the traffic light to cause a major accident in which the customer gets slammed by an oncoming truck. The customer gets flipped, the driver broken, bloodied, and as Brady watches the man die, we get a flashback to the sad death of his brother, Grady. It's a hard scene to watch, the little boy struggling for air. But with the bigot customer, correct me if I'm wrong, but this character doesn't appear in the books, nor does this particular plot point. I understand the need to generate enough content for the bulk of these episodes, but I wonder if Brady, who had been so careful with his Mercedes attack, would allow himself to get so close to the victim, especially when there's the possibility of cameras. With that said, it's definitely in keeping with the character, who needs to exert his murderous impulses, frustrated at the fact that his plan had been impeded. So it's great motivation, and it um, fails to feel like filler. My only quibble is that it would physically place himself so close to the scene of the crime, and I just don't see Brady doing that. With episode five, we kick off <laughs> we kick off with Brady in the parking lot of his crime scene, and the excitement of the memory, um, which well, it causes him to get excited. Now, one thing about the show, it does not shy away from the twisted sexuality within this character, whether it be with his mother or by running people over. Needless to say, this is a disturbing scene, and it's admirable that this is how the showrunners decided to kick off this episode. Bill returns home and finds Ida, his once-interested next-door neighbor, now no longer interested, or at the very least, upset with him at being interested in another, namely Mary Louise Parker's Janie, um, who she had spotted with Bill the night before, in a truly sad scene in which Ida ran to the bar and was going to surprise Bill. It was just one of those, just a twist of a knife um, scenes. But this is not the worst of his problems, as Bill quickly realizes that while he was out the night before, Brady had taken the opportunity to spend time in his own house. Brady, meanwhile, thinks about the moment when he stole the code to the Mercedes from Olivia Trelawney, and I personally love seeing the long-haired Brady gleefully ride away from Trelawney on a shopping carriage. It's a, it's a small touch, but it's one that shows his state of being, how happy he gets when presented with murder, in this case, at the steps he'll need to get around to the murder. To illustrate this point, Brady can't quite help but revel. 
in his previous night's murder of the angry customer when he suggests to Lou that the car accident that took the man's life could actually have been murder. Lou starts to question if she caused the death through the power of will, and in this moment, Brady realizes that he might have been bringing his murder spree close to himself, um, certainly too close to himself. But with what Lou was saying, spoiler alert for the, um, the the final book in the series, but the fact that she's talking about willing people to die um, is another clever wink to where this show um, or where the story and the books went and hopefully where the show goes. Brady is then given the worst sales pitch in the world, and he's offered a job for an un, for an upcoming function, um, a, a gala art show. Um, now, this takes the place of what the concert was in the book, um, which is the the, the central location uh, and plot point for Brady's next big murder spree. Later at home, the foreshadowing for Deborah's death begins with Brady cooking um, while the rat poison sits in the corner of the kitchen. <laughs> If the series follows the trajectory of the book, um, Deborah's going to eat that poison meat that he had prepared for Jerome's dog and ultimately send him spiraling out of control. Now, speaking of mothers, Janie and Bill visit her mother, who might have some information on Olivia before her death. She's a tough old broad and a brittle shell, and despite the fact that she specifically states, I don't know if you heard that over there, that was the other dog, and despite the fact that she specifically states that she doesn't want to talk about Olivia, the detective in him is able to get the information out of her, not through lamplight interrogation, but honest, personal questions. And from there, she begins to open up about a man named Gerald and Debbie's blue umbrella. And not only does she provide some insight, she also recognizes him from the investigation, blaming him for Olivia's public disgrace. Things don't go too well after that with Janie and Bill as they hash it out in the revelation of what Janie's mom brings to light. Janie calls him out for his frustration, and Bill dodges admission of total guilt. Things aren't going too good for our hero, and things aren't going too good for our villain either, as he attempts to poison Jerome's golden retriever, but in his hubris, he's almost spotted by Jerome himself. Well, it's actually more than that. He is spotted. He's just not identified, and it's a very close call. Upon returning home, Brady finds firefighters at the door and a house full of smoke from his mother having left a pan on the stove. The showrunners continue to lay the track for Deborah's eventual death, showing Brady put the poisoned meat in the freezer. After leaving a voicemail to his estranged daughter, Bill is shunned by Ida and is told by Jerome that he thinks the Mercedes killer approached him as well. It's a harsh scene with Bill, burdened by his recent fight with Janie, his screw-up with Ida, his estrangement with his daughter, his inability to solve this case. I mean, he really lashes into Rome. Uh, Jerome. I, I don't recall Bill being a mean drunk in the book, but I really like this choice here. I mean, and it's all because of the casting. I just really love watching Brendan Gleeson stomp around and swear like an angry bear. I mean, it's an incredible visual dynamic. With both of our main characters feeling low, they share a conversation through the blue umbrella. It's a great scene, guys, with Bill luring him in and insulting him while extracting as much information from him as he can. He nails the fact that Brady has been nailing his mother, for instance. The two of them, just they just lay into each other, with each of them being as honest as they can. Bill tells him he has no intention of bringing him to justice. He just wants to kill him. And Brady has been pushed over the limit. He can't control the state of his life, but the only thing that um, had been in his control is the psychological torture of Bill Hodges, and now he's not even in control of that. So everyone spirals out of control, with Bill continuing to pour one drink after the other, Brady writhing in pain in his bed, 
and Deborah struggling with the urge to drink stashed bottles of vodka. All in all, this was not an action-packed episode, but it definitely was a highlight of this season. It's a very tight character study of our hero and villain and the struggles they face with their significant others. Kelly and Bender continue to paint an incredibly captivating portrait of the former cop and the serial killer he wants to catch. For episode six, um, Bill recovers quickly from a heavy night of drinking, and he wakes up and heads straight for the folders of evidence to see if he can do anything with the recent information he'd gleaned the night before his antagonistic conversation with the killer. Brady, meanwhile, is getting ready for his big day and can't find his mother, who has taken a car on a joyride. Bender and Kelly tease a car crash when she drops her cigarette. Knowing that their show kicks off with a murder spree by car, they are wise to constantly remind us through the amount of driving scenes we get from our characters. It's a clever, consistent way to remind us of how much time we spend in our cars. Exiting her car, Deb runs into an old friend on her way to apply to a job, and he gives her a job opportunity for bartending. At the hospital, we discover that Janie's mother had a stroke, and it's here where we meet Janie's aunt and her daughter, the fan favorite Holly, who Bill immediately takes a liking to. When she leaves the hospital because of the stress from the lack of a proper pen, he follows her, and they begin their friendship. And if we had forgotten that he is estranged from his daughter and that this new relationship might function as a surrogate daughter, he sees a father with a young daughter prompting a flashback from 2005 in which his daughter was picked up and taken to the police station. As their relationship grows, Brady's relationship with his boss grows as Brady meets with possible employers. In this sequence, we see life through Brady's eyes, how he simply wants to kill everyone with whom he comes into contact, and in his vision, one of his victims is Stephen King himself. Um, In this death dream, he stands in a restaurant of bodies um, and, and, and rests while holding a toy fire truck he's pulled from the stomach of his mother. Truth be told, this is the first time the show has dipped into truly hokey territory. What's good is that we see the rage that constantly exists in Brady, but this scene is over the top and not really in a good way. Now, after blowing the interview in the bathroom, he spills his life story to the Ed Helms-looking boss, um, Roby, uh, I think that's his name, about his mother, his dead brother, how his mother is currently missing. At least that's what he thinks. In truth, she's out getting a bite to eat with Chaz Chapman. And after catching up, they begin talking about the Mercedes killer victims. And this is nice. This is a nice way to really show how the murders have affected the everyday people in this town and how the fact that the Mercedes killer hasn't been caught still looms large over um, just the survivors in this city. Once again, in another scene taking place in the car, Holly and Bill continue to get to know each other. This is a nice scene, it's tender, it's juxtaposed with the following scene in which Deborah is propositioned by Chaz and her past thrown in her face when we discover that she had burned a woman with a dye job at the hair salon due to her drinking, and the owner was sued over it. Upon returning to the hospital, Bill sees Janie outside on the bench and realizes that her mother has died, and unbeknownst to them, Brady is in the parking lot watching intently. When he returns to the house, he finds his mother. The conversation gets twisted real quickly when Brady demonstrates jealousy about her time spent with Chaz. The conversation that plays out at the dinner table feels simultaneously like a conversation between a couple um, and a mother and son. It's a terribly sad scene, guys, with Deborah already having given up on her dreams of being a part of the world, and she's guilted into remaining locked up in the house. And to make matters worse, 
Deborah can't even make it one day of being sober before her own son returns with a bottle of vodka for her. She eventually succumbs, and he celebrates, finally reasserting some of the control that he had lost over the last couple of episodes. We then get a flashback to Bill's daughter in the police station, and guys, it's hard to watch. We see the disagreement first between Bill and his wife, um, and the toll their daughter's addiction is taking on them. In this moment, Bill is the heavy as she's arrested and processed, and we see the moment, the, the wedge, this wedge has finally been driven um, between the family. Uh, and I don't know, maybe it's, it's the, the, the father-daughter aspect of it um, and, and the way that the, the daughter um, realizes that they're not going to help her this time, that she's expecting you know, him to just let her walk out, but when she starts to get processed and how stoic Bill is just watching her and Nancy Travis just crying and wanting to rush, and it's a very brutal, it's very raw, it's very honest, and the, the, the dynamics of the family are very much on screen and palpable, and um, it's hard. It's a hard scene to watch, and again, I give them so much credit for giving us this. Um, in the book... The, the daughter is referenced but never seen. Here we see it. And I don't think it's a detriment to, to actually see to see it take place. The, the absence I get, um, that by not showing it, the absence looms larger and takes the place of where the person used to be. But um, by actually seeing it and seeing the breakdown, if you're going to do it, you have to do it right. They did it right, and I think that it works really, really well. So... I mean, so far with this show, and this is the conclusion to episode six, um, we have four episodes left, and I'll review them in the next episode, but uh, but where we are, I just, I live for these moments that are truly unnecessary to the overall plot. Um, so, I mean, a scene like this, you know, showing the, the, the history of Bill's tragedy and the, the moments in his life that led to him being the man that he is, and just the scene of watching Deborah on her stoop smoking a cigarette and watching the the people on her streets um, and, and just seeing the the sad reality of poverty that has washed over her while she imagines sunnier days. Um, she doesn't revel. I mean, the, the, the show doesn't revel in these flashbacks. Um, maybe because they just didn't really want to show Kelly Lynch in a wig too much. But... Um, but yeah, we, we see just her, her glory days of high school when the future was wide open for her. And, and then actually for her to get a little bit of a glimmer of hope by reuniting with someone other than her son in, in Chaz, only to find out that he is you know, trying to take advantage of her and he's kind of a sleazebag. But to have him throw her past in, his, in, uh, her, past in, in her face with her alcoholism and the, the pain it inflicted on, on someone else, it's... And how he just doesn't think of her as a person. He, he just wanted to use her. It's, it's just sad, you know? It's just... The, the lives of these characters, there's a sadness that, that, that permeates it. Um, and I'm just... I'm really digging this show. Um, I think that it's, it's glossy. It's slick. It's neat. But it's messy in all the right ways as well. Um, so yeah, guys, um, with six episodes now under my belt, I really, really enjoy it. And uh, if you have any thoughts on Mr. Mercedes, if you haven't watched Mr. Mercedes or you want to watch Mr. Mercedes or you have watched Mr. Mercedes, um, then 
then then shoot me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com um, if you have any you know thoughts on the comparison or contrast between the, these episodes so far and you know how it played out in the book or predictions of where the show is going to to, to go in the next season um, you know thinking about where the the, the books went um, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com because I'd love to, to hear other people's thoughts about Mr. Mercedes. There wasn't a lot of conversation about it, and I'll get to that um, in the next episode, but this, there, there just wasn't a lot of talk about Mr. Mercedes, unfortunately, um, because I think that it deserved um, to be a part of the cultural conversation. So, I mean, I'm a year late. Shame on me, but uh, but I'm, I'm really glad to have talked about this because uh, I really, really enjoyed so far. So, everyone, um, thank you for listening. It's about a half an hour. It's a shorter episode, but uh, I'll be back um, to to talk about episodes 7 through 10 of Mr. Mercedes. Um, In the meantime, if you haven't done so already, head on over to iTunes and leave a review. That can really help me out. And like I said twice in the span of last minute, um, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I think that that's all I got, guys. So uh, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. <laughs>